Welcome to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland. I'm Karen James. Last month, Safety and Justice Oregon interviewed two candidates for district attorney positions in Marion and Washington counties. They also presented their Eight Steps to Justice, a guide for progressive district attorneys. And my name is Julianne Jackson, and I'm the Movement Building Director for Safety and Justice Oregon. We want to welcome you to Safety and Justice Oregon's Eight Steps to Justice. We'll hear from Brian Decker and Todd Spencer, who are both currently in contested races in both Marion and Washington counties. We will learn a little about them. We will present them with our eight steps. And it is our hope that they will also learn from us and the communities that they hope to serve. Co-hosting with me is Leland Baxter-Neal. Leland, tell the folks who you are and why you believe having great DAs is important not only to racial equity, but for the criminal justice system as a whole. My name is Leland Baxter-Neal. I'm the Director of Advocacy at Latino Network. Um, Latino Network is an organization that has um, a deep investment and history in doing work related to the issues we'll be talking about today, but I am appearing tonight in my personal capacity as an attorney and an advocate who has spent much of the last 10 years working in the criminal legal system and in the immigration system and particularly at the intersection of those two systems. When we talk about the role of a district attorney, um, we are talking about one of the most powerful roles in the criminal legal system and whose decisions and policies have massive impacts on those individuals before the court who are witnesses or victims or involved in the system and their families and communities. DAs wield outsized power in the courtroom and they also wield tremendous power in policymaking. So what I mean by that is when communities and organizations and others are working to change or reform the laws that uphold the system. District attorneys themselves and the district attorneys associations frequently have the ability to make or break these efforts uh, by providing or withholding their support for reform. Right now, I'd really like to turn your attention to our eight steps of justice Leland, can you talk about the process of developing these core values for progressive DAs? What we're going to see are uh, the eight steps, which came out of a joint effort between community-based organizations that serve communities of color, working with Partnership for Safety and Justice to basically create a framework and a tool for informing and supporting our communities in understanding the role that district attorneys play. These organizations include Unite Oregon, East County Rising, Apano, Latino Network, and others. And so we wanted to focus on what are those things that DAs can do and actually make a change? And um, what are those issues where a change in that area will actually move the needle, right? Like will actually create meaningful difference in people's lives that have real outcomes that lessen incarceration, marginalization, and the real harm that the system inflicts. Why don't we go ahead and take a look at the eight steps to justice? The first step is simply to listen to communities, to build relationship with and listen to communities that are most impacted by crime, violence, and over-policing. African-Americans make up more than 9% of Oregon's prison population, though they comprise only 
8% of the state's general population. Black and brown people are underrepresented in positions of power and overrepresented in the criminal justice system. DAs and prosecutors need to hold listening sessions to learn from community and build long-term relationships to understand the impact of their office's prosecution and policies on families and communities. They need to learn about effective solutions for accountability and healing that are driven by the communities that are impacted the most by crime and violence, especially BIPOC communities. Step two, support crime survivors. Support all crime survivors, whether or not they choose to prosecute. We need to hire diverse victims assistance advocates to provide culturally specific support. Survivors, particularly survivors of color, are often further traumatized by the public safety system. A Bureau of Justice Statistics report found that 57% of violent crime goes unreported. And this is even higher for victims of color who have experienced harm at the hands of law enforcement because the system has historically failed them. Many survivors have also been convicted of crimes. Prosecutors need to recognize that many of the people they are charging with crimes are also victims of harm who need support and resources. Survivors want more pathways to justice and repair, and they need DAs to hire advocates that will elevate their voices and their needs. Step three, addressing systematic racism in prosecution. Learn how prosecutors contribute to racist, unfair systems and work with Black, Indigenous, and other people of color to develop solutions. Black people are five times more likely to be pulled over in a vehicle, even though white people are three times more likely to have contraband than people of color. Many prosecutors' offices work closely with federal immigration authorities like ICE and ignore or purposely leverage the ways that immigrants are disproportionately punished. This reinforces harmful impacts on Black and brown communities and results in racial profiling. Without data, bias in policing and prosecution often lead to disproportionate impacts to people of color. When we can demonstrate how prosecutors contribute to an unfair system, then we can work together to develop solutions to address disparities. Step four, rethink jail and bail. It's time to reduce the number of people sitting in jail because of low-level crimes, mental health issues, and substance use crises and unaffordable cash bail. Incarceration both triggers and ensures generational poverty because it can lead to job loss or home loss. About nine in 10 detained defendants had a bail amount set that they were unable to meet to secure their release. DAs have the power to fix this by reducing the use of cash bail, developing equitable protocols for deciding when to incarcerate someone and declining to prosecute low-level misdemeanors. Eliminating cash bail is just one solution on the pathway to a more just system of accountability. But this alone won't uproot systematic racism. We have to track the impact and outcomes of reforms to ensure that progress is being made. Step five, reduce probation and parole sentencing. Sentence fewer people to supervision, fix probation and parole so that they don't unnecessarily put people back into the system. Supervision is just another form of incarceration and it needs to be limited, just like the use of prison and jails. Probation and parole sentences are too long, they have too many conditions, and they disproportionately harm Black, Indigenous, and Latin communities. 
Too often, people are incarcerated for technical violations, like failing to get a job or missing an apartment or perhaps changing their address. DAs have the power to put a limit on fines and fees, keep supervision sentences short, and stop incarcerating for technical violations. Step six is investing in public health and not prison. Support cost-effective programs that keep people off of supervision and out of jail and prison. Reinvest in housing, addiction, and mental health services. The vast majority of incarceration is fueled by the criminalization of behavior that's related to substance abuse or mental health. What we need is better access to healthcare and treatment, not more prison beds. More than half of all people in prisons and jails have mental health disorders and are often incarcerated for low-level crimes. DAs can decline to prosecute these low-level offenses. And public nuisance offenses like drug possession, disorderly conduct, criminal trespass, which is often used to arrest people who are experiencing houselessness. Future DAs must support more funding to go towards treatment and other services. Step seven, let judges do their job. End ineffective mandatory minimum sentencing and track racial disparities in sentencing. People who commit violent crimes should be held accountable based on the facts of their case and not based on arbitrary minimum sentencing that doesn't consider a complex array of individual circumstances, including trauma history, access to resources, and more. Tracking the sentencing data will ensure that racial disparities can be addressed and that judges are being held accountable for biased outcomes. DAs also have the power to oppose ineffective mandatory minimum sentencing laws, avoid charging offenses with mandatory minimums whenever possible, and support legislation to reduce unnecessary incarceration and bring us closer to true safety and justice. And our last step, and certainly not least in importance, it's hold police accountable. Set up independent investigations of police who use force to ensure that officers aren't compromised by relationships with the prosecutor's office. Prosecutors and police regularly work as a team. When the person accused of a crime is a police officer, the public deserves to have confidence that the investigation is fair and impartial. DAs have the power to decide how police engage in misconduct, harm, and crime, and to make sure that they're held accountable. Instead, they can call for the creation of an independent commission to investigate use of force and use of deadly force by police. DAs can ensure that police are truthful when they testify and bring forward any prior misconduct by an officer. So those are our eight steps. We'll hear from Brian Decker and Todd Spencer, who are both currently in contested races in both Marion and Washington counties. And Leland, I'm going to pass it over to you. So our coalition has put together a few questions for our candidates. And I would like to start with a question to you, Brian Decker. Step two of the eight steps to justice is to support survivors. Uh, What do you think that a district attorney's office can do to better support survivors and particularly survivors of color? That's a great first question because it is so important to start with centering the needs of survivors, which are different from and are too often trampled by the interests of prosecutors. I've represented domestic violence survivors in court, and I've represented countless 
survivor defendants. You know, as as Julianne was was mentioning a few minutes ago, it's worth remembering that nearly everyone who has been charged with a crime has also been a survivor of crime at some point in their lives. So there's this false dichotomy between defendants' rights and survivors' rights, when really they are both human rights for all of us. Too often in Washington County, I've seen survivors used as a means to an end, used as a means to secure the most convictions, to secure the longest sentences. And when from time to time survivors don't want to play that game, the DA has little use for them. I've even seen the DA ask for warrants to get survivors arrested when they don't want to testify as a witness. Now that's a tough situation and there may be no right answer in that situation, but I sure as hell know that arresting and re-traumatizing survivors is the wrong answer. Survivors come with a diverse set of wishes and hopes in individual cases that run the gamut from total retribution to total mercy. And more often than not, they are somewhere in between, somewhere complicated. We need alternatives to incarceration that reflect this diversity of needs, including an authentic restorative justice program. And we need to promote survivors' access to their own attorneys so that their interests are properly represented in court and properly represented without the conflicting agenda of prosecutors. And Spencer, how could Marion County do better to support survivors and particularly survivors of color? The direct answer to that is in the same vein of what Brian's talking about, of needing effective advocacy for victims and for survivors. And he said it in one way, get them their own lawyer, a solve that is currently available, something that you could do tomorrow. The victim budget in Marion County is huge. It's about 12% of the total budget. There's enough money there to hire an actual lawyer, that's a prosecutor, that works in the victim's advocacy office for all of the victims. That's not just a victim advocate. And don't get me wrong, the victim's advocates in Marion County are great. They care. They work their tails off. But here's what happens. A victim tells the victim's advocate, I want or I need X. The victim's advocate calls whatever the assigned prosecutor is. If that prosecutor doesn't agree, that's it. That's the end. The victim's advocate goes back to the victim and says, well, I'm sorry, but that's it. A lawyer in that same capacity would be much more effective at lobbying other district attorneys, talking lawyer to them and or saying, hey, I know what this judge is going to do. You're going to lose anyway, or I know what this judge thinks, or I know how this process is going to work. And so that's an easy A number one answer. There are some other things we can do. One of the things that's a huge problem, not just in the DA's office and victim advocacy, is the interpretation problem that we have really statewide for defense attorneys, for court systems, for everything, not just for Spanish, but for a bunch of other languages. And you know, we need to lobby statewide to improve that. Improved interpretation would improve access to justice for so many people, including victims of color. You know, we know that racism is systematic, but Spencer, what steps would you take to address racism within Marion County's prosecution if you're elected district attorney? John Hummel did a thing that's really a good idea. He cut out booking photos and other photos of whoever was arrested prior to making charging instrument decisions. I think that's an easy no-brainer. I think the bigger answer to that is hire, and this solves a separate issue that's going on in the DA's office currently, hiring diverse people. And I I don't necessarily mean diverse to mean any one thing. Um, Sure, it could be diversity based on gender or based on ethnicity or based on race, but I more so mean diversity of experience and diversity of thought. Right now, most of the people in that office are Lewis and Clark, U of O, Willamette, from the Pacific Northwest or likely in that sort of scenario, likely come from a more privileged family, um, likely haven't experienced the criminal justice system firsthand, 
likely haven't represented someone and seen the trauma that that causes. And so when you're hiring new people, don't just go to Willamette. Don't just go to Lewis and Clark. Go across the country. Go to a different state. Go to a different region. Try and find someone else to come here and bring a diversity of thought with them and bring a perspective that would uh, help kind of address the issues that are going on. Uh, beyond that, you know, we can use statistics to kind of track where the racial disparities lie. So we could see that perhaps a certain kind of charge um, ends up sending communities of color to prison at a higher rate. And we can try and address that more specifically. But to change the institutional nature of the thing, it's it's a long term, you know, it requires diverse thinkers coming in the door. I'd love to, to jump in on this as well. I think First of all, I believe that prosecutors need to do our own ongoing work on inherent bias and anti-racism. And that is an ongoing process of learning. It is more than holding performative events once a year and, and solemnly nodding and saying, we hear you, and then going back and spending the whole year doing more of the same. I also believe that we are going to need to have cultural translators, is how I think about it, coming into the office, training attorneys on the relevant norms, the relevant fears, customs, of the victims, witnesses, and the accused that are in the various cases in the office so that we aren't just defaulting to a dominant narrative about the meaning of, of the words and the meaning of the actions of, of folks who come from diverse backgrounds. I do believe, as, as Spencer was mentioning, we need to hire prosecutors that reflect the diversity of the community we serve. But beyond that, honestly, the diversity of the survivors who are most affected by crime. And yes, it comes down to diversity of experience. It does come down to diversity uh, along all sorts of intersectional dimensions. Race is one of those. The Washington, Washington County right. District Attorney's yeah. Office has a diverse office, including its support staff, and its support staff is, is crucial, but it's the attorneys who are actually making the decisions in all of these cases and impacting the criminal justice system. And when it comes to the attorneys at the top who are making the most important decisions in the office, there are fewer attorneys of color in the Washington County District Attorney's Office than there are white guys named Jeff. And then finally, one of the, the biggest steps I believe we can take, and this is kind of getting back to that step number one, listening to the community, we need to promote full transparency of the office as a two-way street. All that data that is created by all of those charging decisions that are within the purview of the district attorney, the charging decisions, the plea decisions, all of that data, we need to push that data out and make it accessible and make it available and transparent to the community. And then we need to build structures, responsive structures for the community to hold us accountable where our policies are working and, and where they are coming up short. Thank you, Brian. What are you currently doing to build trust and relationships in Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian, and other communities of color that have been um, disproportionately impacted and marginalized? And as district attorney, how will you build relationships with communities of color who experience racial profiling? And last, how will you work with communities of color on alternatives to policing to improve public safety. Even before launching this campaign, I was reaching out to BIPOC community organizations. I was reaching out to individuals from across 
Washington County, including some folks who rarely get contacted by DAs or DA candidates asking for their input, and including some folks who are here tonight. I believe that that is important. That is important groundwork for understanding the lay of the land and understanding the communities that we are serving. And as DA, I will maintain and build those relationships to understand the growing and shifting needs and perspectives of our whole county. We've got the most diverse county in in Oregon. There are a lot of diverse perspectives and diverse interests when it comes to criminal justice. And I want to be clear that, yes, it is absolutely important to listen, to shut up and listen to what people are saying. It is also important to learn from that listening, and then it is important to turn around and act on what you have learned. So Spencer, kind of same questions for you. What are you doing now to build relationships and trust with BIPOC communities? As a district attorney, how would you build relationships with communities of color who experience racial profiling? And how would you work with communities of color on alternatives to policing to improve public safety? Step number one, listen. That's what I'm doing now. That's what I'm going to do when I'm in office. That's the answer to the first question. It's the silver bullet. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. If you're not in the room to hear the conversation, you're not going to know what they're saying. You're not going to know what matters and what's important to people. The thing I I always say is I will, I, to the, I mean, I do this now, but in the future, I will make myself available. I will listen. You know, I may disagree, but that doesn't mean I'm not taking the meeting and that doesn't mean I'm not going to hear what you have to say. I think that's just monumentally important. And like Brian said, learn, not just listen, actually actively listen. And even if you don't agree with someone or you think that there's a point that's not perfect, come meet them where they are and try and find a, a resolution or an agreement or a place where everybody can be. As far as the the second two questions, you know, I think building relationships with those experiencing racial profiling and working on alternatives to policing kind of go hand in hand. You know, this doesn't necessarily specific to communities of color, but there's this thing in Marion County called the Mobile Crisis Response Team, which is basically a, a law enforcement officer, a qualified mental health professional that try to address mental health crises instead of sending police just to, you know, arrest or not arrest or make whatever decision there is. There's funding on the table right now to institute a program that doesn't involve police in that, that would just be qualified mental health professionals. I think that's that's a really good solve for alternatives to the outright policing that road that we have to go down. As far as addressing kind of law enforcement accountability, um, the Brady List, which is I'm sure a bunch of people you know here don't know, but the Brady List is basically a list that the DA of the head DA of the county keeps that decides which officers are not allowed to testify in court uh, because of misconduct or prior you know, bad things that have happened. And it's completely decided by the DA. That process could and should include citizen participation. That's not just the DA signing the piece of paper. Um, You know, I think that would go a long ways to kind of building up those relationships and not just building up the relationships, building up trust that there is accountability and that there is, you know, a line of communication. So Spencer, what is your position on measure 11 and mandatory sentencing in the state of Oregon? What are your plans to one, repeal or deconstruct Measure 11, and two, to repair the damage done by Measure 11. Well, first, uh, mandatory minimum sentencing is basically a law that was passed. Ballot Measure 11 is what it's colloquially called. Um, It's a statute that makes it so certain criminal convictions result in automatic prison sentences that no one can do anything about, including the Department of Corrections, who is not able to reward persons that are incarcerated with good time or eligibility for earned work reduction or anything like that. The reason it doesn't make sense, there's actually a lot of reasons why it doesn't make sense. First of all, it takes power away from the judge, which is 
is, by the way, step seven of the eight steps. You know, as a, as a prosecutor, your, your constitutional duty is three things. It's to make sure that every single person in your entire county is safe, public safety, to uphold the constitutional rights of the victim and to uphold the constitutional rights of the defendant. That is not the same duty that is assigned to a judge. Judges exist for a reason and they should be allowed to make the decision for a reason. I'm going to stand up and advocate for a victim. That doesn't mean I'm right. You're not right every time. That's the fact. I'm going to stand up and ask sometimes for a prison sentence, sometimes for probation, what have you. On a ballot measure 11 sentence, I'm required to stand up and ask for prison, that may not be the right thing. The judge should have the authority to make that decision. It's also used as a cudgel to threaten defendants, sometimes unconstitutionally to take plea deals that they you know, shouldn't or wouldn't take, but for the looming threat of, here's the unfortunate nature of how it works. And I'm sure Brian has had this exact same experience and it steals your soul. You're representing a client, they're charged with a misdemeanor. You get an offer from the DA that says, plead to this misdemeanor. So we think your conduct will give you misdemeanor and probation. If you don't, we will go to grand jury, we will get a ballot measure 11 indictment, and you will be facing a monstrous prison sentence. And it's unacceptable. That just simply can't be the way things are done. As I mentioned, there's no incentives for good behavior in DOC. It also wastes money. By the way, lengthy prison sentences are statistically likely to increase recidivism the longer you're in prison. It makes it more difficult to find a job when you get out. The less likely you are to get gainful employment, the more likely you are to commit a crime because poverty is one of the major um, contributors to crime in the first place and recidivism secondhand. And, and finally, the reason it doesn't make sense is the bad crimes that Malmeasure 11 is designed to stop. Those guys are going to prison anyway. The, the scary you know, monster under the bed, the easy straw man that people that think, you know, oh, we have to have Malmeasure 11s because this villain needs to go to prison. That guy's going to prison regardless of what the sentencing laws are. If ballot measure 11 didn't exist, if we snapped our fingers right now and it disappeared, a lot of the people facing ballot measure 11 crimes would still hold presumptive prison sentences over their head. As to change the law, I'm going to let Brian address it in just a second, but there's two ways to solve the law. One is judicially getting the Supreme Court to overturn it in some capacity, some carve out. And so the only real solve is getting the legislature to change the law. And that's something that you know, the DA should do. It's a no-brainer that we need to give the power back to the judges. This is a big point of contrast between me and my opponent in Washington County, the incumbent Kevin Barton. He is one of the state's most vocal supporters of Measure 11. He has vocally opposed efforts in Salem to reform it, including earlier this year. I would advocate, have advocated, continue to advocate for reform of Measure 11 legislatively. Look, people who commit crimes need to be held accountable. Most of all, people who commit the most serious crimes need to be held accountable. The problem with Measure 11 is that it's not being used to hold people accountable. It's being used to coerce pleas and to churn through cases like a bureaucracy. And it's doing all of that with, with little regard for the harm that it is doing to families and communities. Mandatory minimum sentencing drives mass incarceration because of overcharging, threatening long prison terms, and then using those threats as leverage to coerce plea deals. And more than any other single sentencing law, Measure 11 has driven mass incarceration in Oregon. Mass incarceration, in addition to being bad for society, traumatic for uh, the affected communities, traumatic not just for the people who are incarcerated, but their families, their communities, their neighborhoods, their workplaces. It is also very expensive for taxpayers. So even setting aside the very compelling 
empathy reasons that it is just wrong. It is also expensive. It is draining our coffers of the resources that we need. Legislators passed laws, mandatory minimum sentencing laws, expanded Measure 11 back in the in the 90s and early 2000s, because when they think of these crimes, when they think of robbery in the second degree, for example, they think of the scariest case of robbery in the second degree or the archetype case of robbery in the second degree. But DAs who are actually making the charging decisions in individual cases, they are applying that law to the least culpable case. That is what minimum means, mandatory minimum sentencing. So too often here in Washington County, we see teenagers charged with robbery in the second degree because they jumped up here after school and ran off with his backpack. And it's usually not white teens, by the way. Don't get me wrong. That's a real harm. That's a real crime. And we should hold those teens accountable. But nobody thinks that they need to go to prison for six years. Not even the DA who charges them with robbery in the second degree thinks that they need to go to prison for six years, but they'll do it anyway. The DA will charge it anyway because they know that it increases their leverage to extract guilty pleas from people and force people to plead guilty and give up their day in court. That is an unjust game and it's got to end. And the way to end it is to ensure that when you charge people for a crime, you are charging a crime that would result in a just outcome in the, in the first instance, even if the case goes to trial. We have to build or, or rebuild a system where judges are the decision makers, where judges are doing their, their job, and it's not just DAs who are decision makers. And it is also the responsibility, as, as the question kind of alluded to, of the district attorney to revisit cases from the past that created unjust outcomes and to correct those outcomes check us out at Safety and Justice Oregon. You can go to our website, check out the eight steps, support us in our work and our legislation. DA is an important role that often does not receive the attention at the ballot that it deserves. All candidates in Marion and Washington counties were invited, but this is who showed up. You have been listening to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland.